Hi, my name is Angela Crocombe and I'm the manager of Readings Kids. It's my great delight to be having a chat with Zana Fraylon, winner of our inaugural Readings Young Adult Prize for her stunning novel, The Bone Sparrow. Congratulations, Zana. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So Zana was born in Melbourne, Australia, but spent her early childhood in San Francisco. And from a very young age, she always had her head in a book. And I believe you still have your head in a book a lot of the time. Most of the time. (laughs) It's a great place to be. Uh, Zana published two picture books for young children and a series for middle readers before moving towards what I consider to be her major works, stories of children unjustly and forcibly detained and the ways they seek to escape both imaginatively and physically. But her stories also have a great deal of humour in them with jokes and riddles featuring and they also focus on the importance of storytelling, storytelling to generate hope. So The Bone Sparrow, the book we're here to celebrate today, is a heartbreaking story about Subi, a Rohingya boy who was born in detention and lives a terrible life along with his family and many others. His flights of imagination and storytelling are the extraordinary ways that he uses to free his mind from the situation he finds himself in. He also meets a girl from outside the detention centre, Jimmy, who has lost her mother and her whole family is grieving with little time or energy to notice her. Jimmy finds her way into the detention centre and the two of them strike up a beautiful friendship. So, Zana, why did you choose this story to tell and why did you wish to focus particularly on the Rohingya people of Myanmar? Yeah, it was um, a story which I knew I wanted to write for a long time. Um, Our immigration policies in Australia have been becoming more and more inhumane. Um, Actually, when I first wrote it, I thought it would be almost a work of historical fiction. (laughs) Um, Sadly, it's not at all. It's more relevant now than, than it was before. Um, but I knew I wanted to write a story about a child growing up in an immigration detention centre because this is what is happening and it's happening in Australia and also in lots of other countries in the world. Um, and it's something which we tend not to think about a lot. We we read about it in the newspaper or see it on the news and then it very quickly leaves our heads uh, as these things tend to do. So I wanted to create a character who... Um, we could walk with a little while and, you know, really experience what it might be like and what it must be like for kids growing up surrounded by a barbed wire fence and and having that as the only world you know. Mm. And um, how much research did you do before you wrote the story? I did I did a lot of research. Um, with all my books that are uh, based in some sort of fact, I tend to research a lot at the beginning. Um, so I probably did maybe three months of, of solid research and then uh, I put that all aside and just focused on the story. Mm. Um, and then after sort of my maybe second main edit, I went back to the research again and, and found details that I'd forgotten or that had become lost um, and put them back in. Okay, wow. So a lot of it, what happens in the story is quite kind of factually true in some ways. It's it's not, you know, a true story, but... Yeah, definitely. And all the, all the details of the camp and... Um, the, the experiences they have and the, the food they eat and the way they're treated, mm. um, the numbers, you know, being referred to as a number instead of a name, all of that is is based in fact. Oh, that's so terrible. And I, I remember in the book that the one time they get a decent meal is sort of when the officials are coming from the government. Or yeah, something. yeah, that's right. And lots of those, those sort of smaller details were um, just maybe a sentence here or there in an interview or uh, a newspaper mm. article that really helped me bring the place and the characters to life. Mm. Um, in fact, the, the, the best thing I found um, was 
pictures and drawings done by kids in refugee camps and immigration detention centres. Oh, wow. And it really gave me such an insight into the way the kids saw their lives and the way they saw the camps. Um, and they were really heartbreaking and beautiful and, yeah, that very important. Wow. Um, I'm constantly struck in the story by the importance of Subi's imagination and his use of storytelling to keep him from going mad or completely losing hope, like his mother and many others in the centre. How important is storytelling to you and does it have the power to keep us sane? Um, I'd like to hope it does. I think it does. (laughs) Storytelling, I think, is so important and it's certainly, you know, a huge part of my life. I'm always going back to books and and stories as a way of finding answers to things and Mm -hmm. um, just helping me get perspective on whatever it is I'm interested in. Um, And I think storytelling is something which is, you know, innately human and I think we need it. Uh, You know, you only need to go back to cavemen days when you see evidence of storytelling and the paintings on cave walls. And I think, um, you know, back then when humans were just beginning to emerge, um, that was how we survived. Because if you couldn't imagine this great beast outside that, you know, you hadn't seen, um, Mm. if you couldn't imagine it, then we wouldn't have lasted very long Mm. as a species. So I think Mm. it really is very much part of us and, and very important. Yeah, great. I, that reminds me, I read um, Sapiens recently and in that at the beginning he talks about um, one of the things that differentiates us from, from other primates is our ability to imagine things that aren't there. So I think concepts like God or, you know, religion and um, all sorts of things, we can think about these things that aren't real in front of us and that's how we have evolved. Yeah, very much so. I'm excited to read that. I haven't read that. I'll have to get my hands on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like to talk about Jimmy, who I just love. She's so gorgeous. So she's the young Australian girl who forms a friendship with Subi and she's suffering from poverty and abandonment, even though she's ostensibly free and in a much better place than him. But she's unable to read and her family primarily ignores her. Um, Why did you choose her as the character who meets with him? Um. The, the simple answer is that she was just the character that came to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the longer response is that um, I knew, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking to write a story, I gather lots of different story threads and I've got to work out which ones I keep and which ones I get rid of. Um, and one of the story threads that I'd gathered for a while now had been about a very remote rural town in, in Australia uh, that happened to be near a detention centre. And the rate of mental illness and depression and uh, suicide was the highest of any town in Australia. And the town was saying, you know, inside the detention centre they have doctors, they get three meals a day, they have schools, which they did at that time. Mm. Um, And they said, we we have nothing. We've got to, our kids have to sit on a bus for hours to get to school. The nearest doctor is three days away. Um, You know, we need help. And so I thought that was that was really interesting that juxtaposition, um, and this seemed the perfect way to to introduce that as well. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so Jimmy entrusts Subi with her precious bone sparrow, which is a relic passed down through the generations in her family. And because she can't read, she asks Subi to read her the story of the bone sparrow, which her mother has given to her. Can you tell us a bit about the bone sparrow, what it is, and its importance in the novel? Yeah, so the bone sparrow is a a necklace um, and it's a carving made from bone and it's of a sparrow. Um, And I didn't, for a while, I wasn't sure what the carving should be. And then 
as I was writing, I think I looked at birds because, you know, they have symbolism of freedom and they're migratory creatures and um, it, it, it made sense in the tale. But then I found all this folklore surrounding them, which made it really perfect. So I knew that I wanted this to be uh, something that was handed down throughout Jimmy's family and um, that it had the idea that it was carrying their souls and their stories with it as well. And then I was looking up sparrows and the symbolism of sparrows and one of the things I found is that, you know, some people believe they do carry the souls of the dead between, you know, the recently deceased and the, the other world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it seemed to fit pretty perfectly. Yeah, great. And it's a beautiful story that that um, you tell in, in the book. Was that from folklore? Did that...? Um, no, it wasn't from folklore. I had, uh, my mum had been researching our family tree and we had sort of found various little stories here and there. And one of them was that one of my great, great, greats had, um, been living, she came from Bulgaria and she grew what was penicillin, became penicillin in a cave, along a cave wall. And she was sort of seen as the local healer, um, and I just love that idea of, of someone growing penicillin on a cave wall. Um, so that was the starting point of it, really. Um, but I do, I do love the sort of those folklore type tales, and it was, um, yeah, it, it was, it was nice. Mm. Oh, it, it's beautiful in the book. Um, the Bone Sparrow has touched many hearts and minds all over the world. It's been published in how many countries now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's been published in the US and the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Translation languages? Yeah, um, I've got to think now. Uh, Italian, Greek, uh, Slovenian, wow. German, Polish. Fantastic. There's, yeah, there's been a few. Um, Korean. Wow. Great. That's wonderful. Um, it was also shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal, which is awarded by UK's Children's Librarians for an outstanding book written in English for young people. And it's one of the oldest and most prestigious of book awards internationally for children's books. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, it didn't win, but it was voted the most popular of the shortlisted titles by young readers. And it also won the Amnesty Sillip Award, and that's for the book that most distinctively illuminates, upholds or celebrates our personal freedoms. And, um, Zana, what was the experience like of going to the UK for the announcement of the Carnegie Prize? Oh, it was it was just fantastic. It was, you know, I was getting to meet authors who I've admired for a really long time um, and there was just a really lovely feeling uh, at the ceremony and I was getting to meet and talk with the librarians and kids as well Um and discuss books. It was it was fantastic, uh, and to win the Amnesty Prize meant such a huge amount to me because I really admire Amnesty International and have supported them for a long time. Mm. Um, and they're, uh, uh, you know, what they do every day is what I try to do in my writing. You know, they mm-hmm. they tell the stories that aren't being told, and they support people who aren't being supported, and they give them a voice. Um, and they, you know, they, they shine a light in all the dark places so that the rest of us can be aware and decide what we want to do if we want to stand up for what we believe in or whether we're happy to turn away and forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, it was a huge honour. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, and I, I'm intrigued. By, your writing is for children and you have three sons yourself who I assume read your books. And what, what questions do they and other kids ask you about The Bone Sparrow? Um, my eldest is the only one of my three who's who's read The Bone Sparrow. Um, the others will at some point. I'll, I'll force them to. Um, <laughs> uh, what questions do I get asked? I mean, a lot of kids, they're interested in the, the research. Um, that's a big, 
a big amount of questions I get. And mm-hmm. also the main question is, you know, what they can do to help um, and how they can how they can change things. And yeah. I'm, it's really wonderful because kids are so full of this belief in themselves that they can change the world. Yeah. Um, and that is how things change. So it's really great to hear um, kids discussing these issues and talking about it. Mm. Um, you know, and there was one kid who read the book and was inspired to do something and so she organised a fundraising activity and I think so far it's raised over $11,000. Mm. Um, that was the swimmer, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Ella. Was swimming laps and raising money. Yeah, she organised a 12-hour continuous swim. Incredible. Um, really amazing, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so that's obviously what what you want them to feel after reading the book. What are you, you know, what are you hoping that they will go out there and do? What am I hoping they'll go out and do? Um, I guess just to stand up for what you believe in, you know, it, it's what mm-hmm. I hope we all do is that, um, you know, we, we call out and we see things that aren't right and whether that's just discussing it or, or whatever, it's just taking notice and mm-hmm. and talking about things. I think that's the yeah. most important thing. And also, um, you know, one of the great things about books is that we can empathise and we can really get to understand characters and experiences in a way which we might not otherwise do. Yeah. Um, and I think having those experiences is so important. Um, in fact, the best question I had from a kid, which I'm still not sure of the answer to, it was um, one of the wonderful things with the Carnegie shortlist is that you get kids shadowing it and then they get to ask you questions. Mm. And one of them was, if you could only save one character... Who would you save? <laughs> it took me a really long time. I'm still a bit haunted by that question. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. It, it is very brutal. <laughs> um, that's great. So you, your stories are told with incredible humanity and compassion, but they are also um, political stories, as we know, particularly in our current climate. And obviously you want to make a difference with your um, stories. Do you see this as the, a role of the writer living in challenging times like we do now? And are you an activist in your personal life? Um, I, yeah, that's a really tough one because I don't think I really consciously set out to make a difference. I think I wanted to tell a story that wasn't being told. Um, and I think as a writer, that's what I'm drawn to is, is the 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 realities that are being hidden from us. So mm. um, in that way, I want to make a difference in the sense that, you know, I want people to be seeing this stuff which, you know, we aren't being shown um, and I want us to question why. Um, yeah. Yeah. That semi-answer <laughs> the question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and does this spill, spill over in your personal life? Are you going to protests and are you writing yeah, petitions? Yeah, we do. And- we do. And we often go to protests. I mean, there are so many rallies being yeah. organised in the city, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, uh, I live in Eltham and there was a, early in the year, there was a big protest about allowing uh, some Syrian refugees to move into, um, which was being unused uh, aged care homes. And some people were saying they didn't want that to happen and that, you know, the aged care homes should be for our people. Um, and there was a massive turnout of people supporting the refugees and there were mm. chalk butterflies painted all over the town. It was it was really beautiful. Um, so we do, we go to lots of those things and we, we bring the kids along if they want to come, which they have so far to all of them. Um, yeah. 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 I imagine your kids must be very socially aware and- Yeah, they and, are. You know, passionate about these topics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, so your new book, The Ones That Disappeared, which is available now, has just been published and it's about children who are stolen into slavery, but it's also a thrilling adventure story. So can you tell me a bit about the origins of this latest book? Yeah, so uh, The Ones That Disappeared came to me when um, I was doing my second lot of research for The Bone Sparrow and going back through old articles and finding new articles. And uh, I came across an article um, about children who were unaccompanied refugee minors who were being trafficked into modern-day slavery. Um, mm. And this was something which absolutely floored me. And yeah, there's been, shocking. It is shocking. And there's been a dramatic increase in um, kids being trafficked. Mm. You know, thousands and thousands of kids who have just gone missing um, mm. and countries know it's happening, but there's, you know, there's not much that, that can be done um, or that is being done. Um, and these kids, once they're, once they're trafficked, it's incredibly hard for them to find a way out. Um, they're indebted to the, the people who own them yeah. um, financially and emotionally uh, and they've, they've got very few options. Yeah, it's just terrible. Um, and as you say, governments are, are doing very little to to do something about this and to change it. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I don't. I mean, I don't know how much is known about about slavery um, and how much is really being done to address it. Obviously, governments are uh, trying to address it, um, but it's that you know, slavery. There's more people enslaved now than at any other time in history. Mm. Um, there are more children enslaved worldwide than the entire child populations of Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore combined, mm. um, and it's. You know, it's one of those things which is often hidden in plain sight. There, there are people and children who are working in um, our farms and massage parlours and nail bars and on the streets. Um, and it, it, these aren't. I was talking to someone about it, and they were saying, "Oh, but you know, kids in poor countries, kids need to work to help their families." And I was saying, "No, that that's not the kids we're talking about. These are kids who've been taken from their families mm. and forced to work for little or no money." Um, often in return for, you know, a mattress on the floor. Um, and it's happening in Australia and it's happening in New Zealand and the UK and in every country in the world. Yeah, it's quite shocking that it's happening kind of on our doorstep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about the actual story of the ones that disappeared and the three kids that feature in it? Yeah, sure. So the ones that disappeared, um, the three kids who are enslaved, uh, Ezra, Isa and Moran, and they're um, enslaved and they're working in uh, what they call the jungle, which is a basement which is full of uh, marijuana plants. And they're, they're growing these plants for the, the slave owner. Um, and that's their job. And they've got, you know, this, they understand that they've been enslaved and they, they understand that you know, there's, it's going to be very difficult for them to, to earn back the money which they owe. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they also feel that, this guy is looking after them and he's he's stopping other people hurting their families and he's giving them food. So, you know, there is that that bind, that emotional bind as well, um, which I think is very, very common. Um, and so they're working in the jungle and then there's an accident and there's a fire and uh, suddenly they have to run. Um, and Moran is too injured to run, so he gets arrested by the police um, and taken to hospital and, and the rest of the stories, the mm. other two trying to work their way and find him back. And along the way, uh, they meet a local boy, Skeet, who, who joins them and who really helps them as well. And, and they help Skeet as well. Mm. Um, one of the, one, one of the uh, horrible things I discovered when I was doing the research is that 
what often happens with these traffic kids is because they're um, engaged in illegal activities. If they are discovered, then they're actually being arrested and charged for whatever the illegal activity is. So a huge there's a huge overproportion of these kids in the juvenile justice system because they're being arrested and charged for being forced to work mm, illegally. It's crazy, isn't it? And the people who made them do it have somehow kind of got away. They disappear, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Zana, can you tell us a little bit about the Rohingya people of Myanmar and why you wanted to feature them particularly in the story? Yeah, sure. So when I actually initially wrote Subi's character, um, I didn't have a cultural background for him at all. And I did that deliberately because, you know, I was, I was making the point that it doesn't matter where we come from, we're all people. Mm. Um, and actually I even went further than that. I didn't give him an age or even a gender at all, which <laughs> which is which is fun to do and, and quite challenging. Um, and when most people read it the first time, they they thought he was a girl, which was also interesting. Um, but he was he was always a, a young boy in my mind. Um, but then, you know, as the story progressed and I got deeper into the writing, I realised that his cultural background was so much part of who he was that mm. uh, I really needed to, to bring that out a bit. And so I was trying to find um, a background for him that would fit and that also um, fit his character and, and who he was to me because um, he was a very strong character in my mind from the very beginning. Um, and at that time in the newspaper there was uh, there were quite a few articles and there was big debate about a boatload of people who had been stranded out at sea and they were Rohingya refugees from Myanmar um, and they were stranded at sea for a number of weeks and people were dying, they had no water, no food, no petrol and all these governments worldwide were arguing over who should take them and no one was taking them. And everyone knew they were there, but no one was taking them. And they were just, we were just all watching these people die. Um, and it was eventually uh, six fishermen who came and, and, and rescued these people and, you know, showed humanity mm. um, that the governments refused to show. So uh, I started looking into the Rohingya people of Myanmar and I didn't know anything about them before that. Um, but they are um, one of the most persecuted people on earth um, there's suggestions that the Burmese government are, are committing genocide in their treatment of these people. Um, they are routinely killed, disappeared, put into camps. Um, they're not allowed to work. They're not. Their kids aren't allowed to go to school. They're seen as illegal immigrants, even though uh, they've been there for generations and generations. And mm. you know there are reports of um, Rohingya people living there in the 16th century. Um, so uh, I sort of discovered these persecuted people that no one really seems to know much about. Um, and and I think, you know, as I said, it's it's these stories that aren't being told and the, the voices we aren't hearing that, that really draw me in. So um, mm. it all fit very well. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that this was exactly who Subi was and exactly who his family was. Yeah. And that also ties into the importance of, of storytelling, I think, because... Um, Subi's mum uh, used to tell him stories every night of his family and his ancestors and, and his pa, um, and then she's sort of, she's stopped at the beginning of the book and she's kind of, she's given up hope and that, that absence of stories is very telling, I think. You know, he's still telling the stories and he's still imagining a better world, but his mum has stopped telling those stories. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the most terrific things for me in our treatment of of asylum seekers is that deliberate and calculated 
um, attempt to strip people of hope. Mm. Um, and mm. to have anyone detained indefinitely to say, you will never live in this country and we don't know how long we're going to keep you here for and you will never know how long we're going to keep you here for. It's, I'm not sure how people manage to keep hope in those, those yeah. situations. Yeah. Um, and yet kids are so resilient and so strong. And, um, you know, I used to work in integration aid and there were lots of kids I worked with who were living in pretty horrific conditions, but that was just their life and they didn't realise, you know, how, mm. how badly they had it. Um, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about kids is that they do maintain that hope. And I think one of the ways we do that is by telling stories and by telling ourselves stories and by imagining a better tomorrow. The book reminds me a lot of a book I loved in childhood, uh, The Silver Sword by Ian Sorelia. Have you read that? I have, but I cannot remember it. I remember <laughs> loving it, but I can't remember it all. I remember the, the front cover very clearly though. Yeah, it was, oh, it was a great adventure story, you know, set during war times and um yeah, the, the kids are kind of looking for their father and, and they meet a young street boy as well, like Skeet. And, uh, yeah, just really, really good, fantastic adventure. Um, so, Zana, as the inaugural winner of the Readings Young Adult Prize, you will hold a place in our hearts for a long time to come and you'll also be the recipient of $3,000. <laughs> what, what does winning the prize mean to you and your writing? It means such an incredible amount and it, it, it's so indicative of the support which I've had um, from librarians and booksellers and especially readings. Um, readings has always held a very special place in my heart and it was actually in a story time at Readings that I first thought about becoming an author. So um, <laughs> It's lovely. It, no, it's great. It's very true. And, you know, Kathy was one of the, the people who I gave a, my draft to and said, let me know what you think. Um, and she passed it on to, to um, Alan and Unwin for me and really got my foot in the door. So, um, yeah, readings is it's sort of like my second home. You know, I'm in there all the time and I just love it. It's great. So it that's, means a huge amount to me. That's beautiful. And I'll just do a shout-out to Kathy Kozlowski, who has been with readings for 20 or 30 years and was the book buyer at Carlton for many years and did story time and still works two days a week in the shop, which is incredible. Sure is. She's great. <laughs> That's really lovely. Um, thanks again, Zana, for speaking to me today. And uh, The Bone Sparrow, The Ones That Disappeared, and your first book, No Stars to Wish On, are available at a reading store near us and online. And I encourage everyone to buy them and read them and talk about them uh, with their loved ones. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks. 